This podcast covers mature, intense, morbid, and sometimes just scary stuff. Listener discretion is advised. This finger licking episode is not for the faint of flesh. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we explore topics of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. Emphasis on the grisly this week, majorly. (laughs) This is a rough one, so if you're not really into the topic here, cannibalism, you might want to dip. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Elise Willems. And I'm Jessica Vasami. If you were browsing the dark-ish web in the early days of the internet, perhaps you'd stumble upon a website called The Cannibal Cafe. And yeah, it sounds exactly as the name implies. Cannibal Cafe was a forum for people with a fetish for consuming human flesh. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a slurp-heavy episode. (laughs) Yep. In March of 2001, a German computer technician named Armin Mivis posted an advertisement to the site. Mivis was looking for a well-built 18 to 25-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. Like, literally, that is what he typed. Yeah, which it's bonkers to me that he would even think he got a, would, like, get a response. Oh, yeah. Um, But that's not the most bonker part about this. And yeah, it's not your typical personal ad. And people, like, lie about themselves all the time on dating apps, (laughs) too. So it's no surprise that the person who responded, and yeah, somebody responded, didn't really fit the bill. Burned Brandes was not 18 to 25. He's a little bit older. He was a 43-year-old bespeckled engineer from Berlin. And while Brandes wasn't the only one who responded, he was the only one willing to be eaten. And so star-crossed cannibal and can a bee met up at Mivis's home on March 9th, 2001. And it's like, what What were those other people responding and looking for? Yeah. This is, of course, when things started to get twisted and morbid after these two hooked up. That night, they made a four-hour-long videotape that has never been released to the public for obvious reasons. Uh, we are about to kind of describe a little bit of it, though. So if you are particularly squeamish, Again, you might want to click that skip button a couple times. Or maybe skip the entire episode because this whole thing's going to be a gross roller coaster of eating human flesh. Yeah, it's going to have its moments of levity because you know you gals. <laughs> yeah, gals. <laughs> it's, it's still going to be one of those. But yeah, yeah, take it away, Jess. So in this video, Mivis is seen amputating Brandes's penis. Brandes initially asked Mivis to bite off his penis but it did not work. So Mivis is then seen removing Brandes's penis with a knife. Okay, and then these two are like, we should eat this. So they attempt to eat it together, the penis, raw. However, it was too chewy, as Brandes put it. He had swallowed 20 sleeping pills and a bottle of cough syrup before this, though, so that may have also impeded his ability to chew. So because of the chewy factor here, Mivis fried the penis in a pan with some like salt, pepper, garlic, and wine. He tried to cook it in some of Brandis's fat as well, but the penis was already too burnt by then. He uh, overcooked the penis. So to dispose of it, he fed the burnt, chopped up penis to his dog. I don't like that they made the dog uh, a part of this. I know. That's the one part of this I'm not... I mean, because again, these are two consenting people here. Yeah. Not not the 
the dog. Yeah, the dog's not like, oh, yeah, penis. <laughs> the dog doesn't know. <laughs> no. Yeah, so this happens, and then Brandis is bleeding out in the bathtub, like drifting in and out of consciousness. Um, Ivis drew a bath for him to like settle in for the night while he enjoyed a few chapters of Star Trek. Yeah, he sure did. Uh, but he couldn't focus. He was like going in there every like 15 minutes to check on Mivis. Um, Mivis preyed on his actions for a while before ultimately deciding to kill Brandes by stabbing him in the neck and hanging his body on a meat hook. Yeah. And then he fed off of Brandes' corpse for the next 10 months, consuming approximately 44 pounds of human flesh. And then he kept the extra under pizza boxes in his freezer. Yeah, like I already have, you know, IBS issues and whatnot. I'm like wondering what eating 44 pounds of human flesh would do to my system. No idea. Oh my gosh. No, yeah. Yeah. I would be in and out of the bathroom. And then I'd look at the tub and I remember him in the tub and I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, right. It's just a cycle of misery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in 2002, authorities were alerted by a college student about Mivis's unsettling online want ads. So they went to search his home and found body parts and the videotape of Brandis's death. And of course, Mivis was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. He was ultimately retried and sentenced to life. Yeah. So he admitted, Mivis admitted to committing the acts for sexual pleasure, but more disturbingly, he straight up told the authorities that he believes that there are about 800 cannibals currently living in Germany. And he also said that he would, uh, that he enjoyed it and he would maybe do it again as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then I'd be like, yeah, we should absolutely lock him up for life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like what I don't get is like, how do you know, or why do you believe there are 800 cannibals living in Germany? Like, where's he getting these numbers from? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that cannibal cafe. I mean, again, it's taken down, so we don't have all the info there, but what? That can't believe that that was even just a the dark web's just full yeah. of stuff. Ugh, only getting worse. But gosh darn it, Jessica, why were we picking on Mivis here? Okay, why is it so morally wrong to eat people? Elise, I have no personal morals for me, so I had to Google it. Uh, okay. But let me tell you, there are a lot of different takes. Yeah, I would say context certainly plays a part, which we're going to get into this episode because maybe it's part of culture or Mm -hmm. you're just trying to survive. Yeah. And, you know, in those cases, like, should it be so taboo? Yeah. I mean, I think you and I and most people are in agreement that, yes, yes, it should be. Yes, it should be. Yeah, yeah. But out there is a person who sees it as like a spiritual act, possibly a form of communion, strength or tradition, you know? Yeah. And and historically, politically, cannibalism has been used as a code switch. The word cannibal is derived from the Spanish version of carib, which means strong man, and was used to describe those who resisted the Europeans when they came to the New World. By exploiting the cannibalistic practices of some native people, they were made to seem subhuman and worthy of destruction. Cannibalism became a way to gawk at the other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I could see that's why that would be like, oh, deemed to be not as civilized as the people from the new world perceive themselves to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In current pop culture, cannibalism is having this moment. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Flesh. Oh, Jess. I have. I yeah. loved it. it mm-hmm. I mean, it was messed up, but I could not tear my eyes away from the screen. Yeah, it kind it's kind of you know based in the underground human meat trade, but it's more Sebastian stands in it. Mm-hmm. And He's great. It's, 
yeah, it's if you liked a movie like Barbarian, you'd probably be into flesh. It also talks about like being if you were, I don't know, there's so many rich people in the world and they've done everything that you could possibly think of, you mm-hmm. know, the everything they can without being, I don't know, some like immortal god. So it's like, what's next? Oh, yeah. let me eat humans in the yeah. most. I'm bored. I've been to every exactly. Michelin restaurant, the best. So like what, mm-hmm. what new frontier is there? Mm-hmm. There's also a book called Tender is the Flesh, which is about a society in the future that farms humans for consumption. Oh, I haven't read that, but now I'm like kind of interested. No, I have not read that either, but very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a TV series, The Horrors of Dolores Roach, which is about a woman who goes on a killing spree, feeding her victims to unknowing customers at an empanada shop. So in the show, people oh. just like, yeah, can't get enough <laughs> of the strangely sweet pork-like meat, uh, which is simply called carne muy loco. I, I like that this is kind of like Sweeney Todd-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, she's killing her customers. Jess, yeah. are, are you a Yellow Jackets fan? Oh, 100. Yes. Love Yellow Jackets. I've only seen the pilot, but I know that there's some cannibalism, correct? No, yeah, there is. And I mean, you yeah, we'll get into it. But yeah, like, what do you do if you are, if just to give you a brief synopsis, yeah, they, this women's soccer team is flying to, I think, a championship and plane crashes in a remote area of the world. And, uh, they try and hunt, but you know, I, I, they're like us. I don't know how to hunt, Elise. I don't know if you do, but they're trying their best. And then eventually, like, when people die, because they're, yeah. it happens. Like, what do you, what do you do when you're so hungry? Like, mm-hmm. what, sometimes we have to, I don't know. It's, I wish I will never be in that position, but I yeah. also don't necessarily know if I blame them. <laughs> we, t- we bring it up later, but the movie Alive, also that kind of premise yes. and conceit. Yes. And, you know, like, I think now it's in our cushy homes and with everything we need, we're really creeped out by it for obvious reasons. But the truth is cannibalism is a part of human history. It's happened since the beginning of our species and has a lot of root causes, like some we've covered, you know, survival, of course, psychosis, ritual, we haven't really gotten into, but that's a big part of it. And we're going to talk about that and and why someone might opt to feed on their fellow human. But first, there's one major question we're curious about, and maybe you've thought of it too, but could a human being even survive on a human-only diet? I didn't think about it before this, but now I'm like so curious to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have an answer thanks to James Cole, who's a professor of archaeology at the University of Brighton in the United Kingdom. He found that cannibalizing a human would only provide about a third of your daily needed calories. Yeah. So while Paleolithic humans did engage in cannibalism, Cole claims they did so for societal or even cultural reasons, so not for nutritional ones. Yeah. He said he also had a really hard time eating pork after he did that study. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Which I guess like pork, I mean, pork, I'd probably say is maybe the most human-like meat. Yeah. I have trouble eating pork. Um, I don't like pork chops and I don't, like I'll eat bacon sometimes, but Mm -hmm. pork is the- I'm the same way. It's so weird to me. I don't know why. Yeah. And also pigs are so intelligent. Yeah. National Geographic also reported that the nutritional value of human flesh compared with other animals is actually not very calorie packed. A pound of human muscle only has about like 650 calories, while like a boar or a beaver has about 1800 calories. 
I can only imagine how little calories you and I offer. <laughs> I thought about that. Yeah. I was like, we are full of junk food. Yeah. Yeah. The junk I food of cannibalism. Know. Yeah. No, so no. Cannibals, you're not going to get what you bargained for here. <laughs> So just don't try it. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go on, just a quick little distinction. We use the term cannibalism usually to refer to a human eating another human, but it can apply to any species consuming its own kind. There's actually another term, anthropophagy, which describes the literal act of a human eating another human. So just clearing that up. But let's talk about the reasons you might take a bite out of, you know, your neighbor's arm. Starting with ritual cannibalism, which can mean many different things to different cultures. Oh, I thought it was like, because he spilled hot sauce all over it. And it looked, it smelled and delicious. That, absolutely. Sometimes, hey. But no, no, ritual cannibalism. That's a big one. In 1980, Doctors Without Borders documented the ritualized consumption of human flesh among soldiers in Liberia for ancient Egyptian pharaohs. Eating another's flesh meant eternal afterlife. We've talked a little about this on the podcast before. And for the Aztecs, cannibalism was more like communion. Mm -hmm. There's actually a word for ritual cannibalism. It's called exocannibalism. Exocannibalism is the eating of human flesh for a benefit to you or the corpse in the afterlife. Kind of like with the four people in the Eastern Highlands province of Papua New Guinea believe they eat humans. They're on an island just north of Australia. Yeah, most of the world had no idea that anyone lived in the highlands of Papua New Guinea until the 1930s. It was in the 1950s that researchers began going to the villages and collecting data on the people living there. That is when they stumbled upon something perplexing and disturbing. <laughs> yeah, people there were dying in droves. In the 50s, every year the tribe was losing up to 200 people and they couldn't pinpoint why, like if there was disease or illness. And they call this mysterious disease or cause kuru. Kuru means shivering or trembling. A person with kuru would first have trouble walking, then they would slowly begin to lose control over their limbs. Within a year, the person wouldn't even be able to get off the floor. Mm -hmm. They also called it the laughing death. Because along with losing control of your limbs, you would also lose control of your mind and emotions. The infected person was unable to feed themselves or control any of their bodily functions. Strangely, the disease only affected adult women and children younger than eight. So bizarre. Yeah. And then they dug into like why this was the case. Because like, yeah, there were almost no young women left in the tribe because of who it was targeting. And then children dying meant that the four were on the brink of extinction too. Yeah, Kuru was a full-blown epidemic. Many of the locals were convinced it was the result of sorcery. The village people became obsessed with trying to find a solution to the, quote, laughing death. Mm -hmm. This is where a lot of researchers stepped in to help. They were like, maybe it's genetic, but then it couldn't have been because it affected women and children in the same social groups, but not the same families. So there had to be something else. In the 1960s, researcher Shirley Lindenbaum identified that the illness actually started in the northern villages, but then slowly moved south over the decades. Yeah, and she started pulling these strings together, and then it all started to kind of fall into place. And what she eventually landed on was the answer was funerals specifically the people who were eating dead bodies at said funerals. Fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into exactly what funeral catering for the four looked like after a word from our sponsors. Every 
Everything everywhere feels so stressful, and I really haven't been sleeping great lately. Can you hear it in my voice? Yeah, I mean, same. I feel like that is just the mantra for our generation. I haven't been sleeping great lately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's everywhere you look, there's something in the news cycle or just in life, in our technology that's making us anxious. And then you don't sleep and then your brain is like jelly the next day. Yeah. We both commiserate over this all the time. Yeah. If I'm tired the next day, I'll stare at a wall for 30 minutes and then not. I'm like, (laughs) how did I get here? I'm supposed to be working. I just can't. But like what actually helps though, and me and Elise love this thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you guys- We've gone on about it for (laughs) so long. Yeah. You guys have heard us um, for a while. It's the- Hatch Restore 2, baby. Okay, so we're in love with this device, the Hatch Restore 2. We've talked about it ad nauseum. It is like having a gentle sleep guide, just someone there who, my robot buddy, who gets me to bed, an ally in rest, if you will. I love that. Yeah, no, it's your all-in-one dream machine. So you've got your alarm clock, a light, a sophisticated sound machine. Yeah, and honestly, I don't, like a lot of alarm clocks can be so ugly, which this is not in the slightest. It's beautiful to look at. It looks so just sleek and elegant on your nightstand. And it was made to help you form healthy sleep habits. Not to mention the great meditation and mindfulness exercises And truly, being well-rested allows me to show up for work, for fun, for all of the things. Your hatch teaches your body when it's time to sleep and when it's time to rise with the light and the sound cues. So I will go to sleep with um, rain and then I wake up to forest birds with the um, Fiji sunrise. And most of the time I have it set for like five minutes uh, right before my actual alarm, the sound goes Uh off. And most of the time- The sunrise. Yeah, the light. light. Yeah. And most of the time the light will get me up first. And I like that because it's it does help with your circadian rhythm. Yes. And it just feels so gentle compared to like a blaring alarm in your face. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> Sometimes if I'm just I'm getting into bed and I'm gonna read for a little bit, I just put on the like me rainstorm me too, from Liz. it. That's when yeah. so my body has gotten used to it at this point that when my body hears the rain sounds, it's like, uh-oh, all of a sudden a switch hits and it's like time <laughs> yes. to go to sleep. Melatonin is being released. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, we've sung its praises before, but the hatchery store too, it's wonderful. Right now, Hatch is offering our listeners $20 off your purchase of a Hatch Restore 2 and free shipping at hatch.co slash 30mm. Sleep deeply and wake gently with the Restore 2. Go to hatch.co slash 30mm to get $20 off and free shipping. That's hatch.co slash 30mm. Jess, you ever get the feeling someone's watching you like maybe a cannibal who's (laughs) about to... Or you. you. Or me. Yeah, I mean, I'm usually, I'm always monitoring all of your <laughs> actions. Um, yeah, I know, but it's like Halloween season. I don't mm-hmm. know. We're just kind of being paranoid, but this is actually real. Yes. Every single day, someone is watching your every move, like really and truly. The worst part is you're even paying them to spy on you. Yeah. And that someone is your internet service provider. You know, the company that you pay for the internet. Yep. Every website you visited late at night, how much you've spent on you know, stuff you're buying, they're keeping tabs on you. And that's why we use ExpressVPN. Hell yeah. If you use the internet, which you all do, ExpressVPN is an app that you just need to be using. 
Yes, in the U.S., internet service providers are legally allowed to sell all of their users' browsing activity to advertisers. Oh, yeah. And it's not just them, like your network admins, parents, workplace. They can they can see everything you click on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it might be hard to explain. if, we, Like us, we've got, we're looking up all kinds of morbid stuff. <laughs> I know, I know, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, but the good thing is with ExpressVPN, 100% of your traffic is rerouted through their encrypted servers so no one can see a thing. Yes, and ExpressVPN is so simple to use. You just open up the app, tap the big button, and that is it. Works on all of your devices, whether you browse the internet on your phone, tablet, computer. You can use it up to five devices at the same time under one ExpressVPN subscription. So stop letting people invade your privacy. Right now, get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free when you go to expressvpn.com slash 30mm. That's expressvpn.com slash 30mm, expressvpn.com slash 30mm to learn more. All right, we are back. So yes, in an act of love, when a person died, the body would be cooked and consumed. The idea was that if a body was buried, it would be eaten by worms and bugs, the four believed that it was better for the body to be eaten by people who loved the person. And their funeral tradition went something like this. The women uh, would prepare the body, they'd remove the brains, and then mix it with ferns, cook it in a tube of bamboo, and then, like, they were doing jello shots, you know, yeah. just slurp it back. There we go. <laughs> yep. The rest of the body was uh, fire roasted. The four ate everything except the gallbladder, and it was primarily uh, women who ate it. Oh, Jess, you wouldn't be able to. Nope, not me. Um, I don't have one. So, yeah. That's a, that's a 30 more minutes fact. We'll see that in the IMDb trivia. <laughs> Jessica <laughs> does not have a gallbladder. Uh, the bodies of the women were believed to be able to tame dangerous spirits that accompanied the dead body. So if they consumed this this essence, then the spirit of the dead person would have safe haven within the body of the living. Some of the children would get past pieces of the human meat as snacks. But when the children hit a certain age, specifically the boys, they would be sent off to live with the men. Yeah. And men were told not to touch the meat of the dead body because their bodies were not strong enough to hold the spirits. And so researchers kind of like put all these beats together, connected these clues and were like, wait a minute. This may stem from eating dead people. So then they they did some <laughs> experiments to kind of prove their hypothesis. Yeah, the biologists injected infected human brains into chimpanzees. And sure enough, the symptoms of Kuru took hold. But it wasn't a virus or a fungus. Like, how could this disease survive after being boiled? Yeah, what they found was this twisted protein in the dead brain which caused other proteins in the living brain to twist also, eventually making these huge holes in the brain's nervous system. Yeah, so think of it as like a form of mad cow disease, but with humans. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. Once the infected dead human brain was ingested, it took over its host. Sounds like a bad zombie movie, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, if they wanted to survive, the four had to stop eating their dead loved ones. Yeah, and like they did. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> okay, I guess we got to stop begrudgingly. <laughs> and they stopped doing these practices more than 50 years ago. However, Kuru still crops up from time to time because it can take decades for twisted proteins to start having an effect on the body. So even though they stopped, you might find somebody in like their 70s who now is being affected by what they did half a century ago. That's bizarre. 
Ugh. When Shirley Lindenbaum visited the South Four Village in 2008, one man said, see how many children we have now. Yeah, they're getting it back. Yeah. <laughs> building the population. There you go. Yeah. So they had to stop eating the dead in order to survive. But Jess, what about people who resort to cannibalism because they have to survive? I know, right? It's like a catch-22. What yeah. are we doing here? How do we do this? <laughs> yeah, no, there are many stories of desperation leading to cannibalism. One of the most infamous ones being the Donner Party, who in 1846 ate their fellow travelers after becoming stranded in the snowy Sierra Madres. Also, it came up briefly earlier, but 1972, an Uruguayan soccer team crashed in the Andes Mountains. They were stuck there and starving, and so they eventually resorted to eating their frozen teammates. Frank Marshall directed a movie about it, mentioned it earlier, Alive, starring Ethan Hawke. But like when I was growing up, that was the the big kind of like cannibalism movie that you would think mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the soccer team being stuck there. Yeah, especially knowing that it was based on a true story. Yeah, and I think like one of the players that survived was like a consultant on the movie or Jeez. imagine having to relive that. You know, I do not. I, yeah, that's one of the interesting things with Yellow Jackets is you do see them as adults, like trying to deal with life after being in the wilderness for so long, having to do weird things to survive. Oh, yeah. But how do you come back from that? It's like Lord of the Rings. You come back from throwing the, the ring in the fire of Mount Doom. You can't come back. You from can't. That. There's just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't come back from eating your best friend. No. Nope. And I won't be able to, Jess. No, don't eat me. <laughs> Uh, what if I have to survive? Well, no, I'm bringing you down with me. I go, you go, man. <laughs> Put a poll in the comments. Should I eat Jessica <laughs> if I have to survive? Lord, I've been eating healthier <laughs> foods recently, so maybe that'll be good for you. Oh, yeah. I need you to prepare your body, please. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But as awful as it is, survival cannibalism plucks at our most base human instincts that is probably why it seems to be the most disturbing reason for eating human flesh, because it feels like it really could happen to anyone, even me and you, Elise. Yeah, it's like, remember when you were a kid and you would see something, quicksand in a movie or whatever, and you would think, man, there's going to be a point in my life where I'm going to have to traverse quicksand. I, know, I, know. I feel like that's when you're a kid and you hear these stories about like somebody had to survive. You're like, maybe one day I will have to eat Johnny. Like, yeah, 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 I don't want to think about it, but you're right. Maybe we do need to think about these things. Yeah. But again, like, you know, we're laughing, but no laughing matter when there are real people that did ha have to do yep. this. Like yep. Jamestown, Virginia, 1609 to 1610. They call that year the starving year because there were so many diseases rampant, poor drinking water, a bad harvest. People were just dying drastically like colonial Jamestown was the city of the dead and some historians thought that settlers ate each other in an effort to survive or maybe they ate their dead you know they just had to yeah a recent study found a skull of a 14 year old Jamestown resident confirms that's exactly what the settlers did in 2012 a Jamestown rediscovery archaeologist found the mutilated skull and severed leg of a teenage girl in an old Jamestown fort cellar. Yeah, they they found her remains among bones of butchered animals and other food scraps. But if the reason they knew that she was eaten was the markings on her skull were able to indicate that someone had fed off of her. Yeah, archaeologists confirmed that the markings indicated that someone used a tool to remove the soft tissue and brain from the bone. 
you can see like the utensil scrapes and whatnot. But yeah, this is the first forensic evidence of survival cannibalism at any European colony in North America. So creepy. And then, of course, the story that you might be more familiar with is the horrors that occurred in Ukraine in the 1930s. Holodomor is the great Ukrainian famine. And in Ukrainian, it means killing by hunger. Unlike Jamestown, which experienced famine from bad harvests and weather, this famine was man-made. In 1932, Stalin's Soviet Union was coming down hard on Ukraine and controlling their food supply. Mm -hmm. Stalin responsible uh -huh. for so many deaths. Uh -huh. Him and that mustache. <laughs> yeah. Um, many instances of widespread cannibalism were documented during this time. There's so many like horrific accounts online you can read about. Uh, the famine was so intense that Ukrainians had to eat people to survive. One doctor wrote to a friend in 1933 stating that survival was a moral and physical struggle. Like, uh, it's it's awful that people get in positions where, like, you have to just choose to do the right thing to survive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She informed her friend that she had not yet become a cannibal, but she was not sure that would be the case by the time the letter reached her. Between spring 1932 and July 1933, an estimated 3.9 million Ukrainians died from starvation. Uh, a lot of this was because the Soviet Union had limited the Ukrainian grain supply and they weren't giving them enough rations to uh, account for that. Yeah. Timothy Snyder wrote in his book, Bloodlands, the good people died first. Those who refused to steal or to prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow man died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. Yeah. Most of the cases of cannibalism were necrophagy, which is consuming a body what that's already dead mm -hmm. but it was common for people to murder children for food super dark one woman when asked why she had uh, killed her own children and eaten them said her children would not survive anyway but this way she would can't even imagine i that those are just decisions that i just don't ever not even in my brain yeah yeah, yeah. and then to up the ante on the disturbing People maybe don't know this too, but like they were selling human flesh at markets and it was kind of an open and acknowledged secret, like because people were just so glad that they could get whatever meat they could get. And maybe yeah. you would even lie to yourself and be like, oh, that's that's probably pork hanging over there, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. when you really know in the back of your mind, like that's probably a person. Yeah. In March 1933, the secret police recorded at least 10 reports of cannibalism per day. You know, it's so interesting because when we resort to uh, naturally, not consciously, I feel, to our kind of survival brain, maybe our like reptilian brain, if you will, I don't know, that when it does come to like moral versus survival, I just, I, I don't even know if we even feel the, the moral part because we are so hungry and so just focused on survival that yeah, I'm just wondering if I'll even if I'm like, what would I do in the situation? Of course, mm -hmm. um, like, would I even feel the moral, or maybe I would somewhere in the in the back of me, somewhere deep down. But overall, it's just like my survival brain yeah. is just like, you have to eat this. Do you lose that? Do you lose that ability to think rationally and have that empathy? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I don't know either. I hope I don't ever get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. But in regards to the, you know, 10 reports of cannibalism per day, the police tried to keep the cannibalism under wraps. So it was not a good look and disputed 
the propaganda that Ukrainians were hoarding Soviet grain, keeping all the food for themselves. Ukrainians found guilty of cannibalism were arrested, lynched, imprisoned, and or executed. Yeah, and while rubbernecking at cannibalism is the point of this episode, just want to acknowledge that, like, these people were so desperate at this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Okay, like, the starvation was so bad that, like, like we're saying now, we can't even wrap our heads around how bad it was. Yeah, yeah. You know? I've never yeah. been that hungry before, which I'm very thankful for. Dead bodies of starved people were strewn all over the streets. People literally stepped over them as they walked. Over the years, it was finally recognized as genocide, but it remains a very dark part of history and an example of how desperation can truly test our moral limits. And then, um, you know, there are times where someone's not on the brink of starvation, okay? Like in Germany in the 1600s when they thought cannibalism equated to medicine. Much of medical cannibalism was considered a sympathetic magic. It was most practiced in Europe and China. In ancient Rome, drinking the blood of killed gladiators was thought to cure epilepsy. Yeah, yeah. And all this mentality sort of peaked in Europe in the 16th century. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but like creating medicines by crushing bones and harvesting fat, even like drinking blood. Hey, they're trying everything and anything. Mm-hmm. Powdered skulls supposedly helped cure headaches. Sometimes the powder was mixed with chocolate to help bleeding internal organs. Human fat was soaked into bandages and applied to wounds in order to help them heal. Yeah. And and it, it, there was this perception too of like the fresher the better. Like if you drank fresh, warm human blood, it was believed to be more potent because it still held the soul of the dead person. Um, people in Germany, they would even go to executions with cups and they would pay the executioner off to fill it with a little bit of fresh blood. Man. Yeah. Okay. Wow. This, hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in China, cannibalism took the form of piety filial, which is considered the utmost respect for elders. Donors, mostly women, would cut flesh from their bodies and feed it to an ill parent. The body parts were usually in order. Thighs, upper arms, and livers. The Ben Cao Gang Mu, a medical encyclopedia that was first published in the 16th century, listed 35 body parts total that were considered good medicine for consumption. But this was a long time ago in China, right? Well, no, not really. Psych. (laughs) Psych, yeah. (laughs) No. During the Cultural Revolution between 1966 and 1976, hundreds of instances of cannibalism occurred, mostly motivated by hate for class enemies. There was even this belief that if you ate the boiled hearts of young children, it could extend your life. And uh, there's a story of a school teacher that heard this and tried to do just that. Ah, yeah. The story goes that he chose a 14-year-old girl out of his class and announced she was an enemy, which was enough to get her killed by an angry mob. God. Um, And then he waited around until the mob left, dug out her heart, and then took it home. Uh, a vice president at another Chinese school was apparently killed and eaten right on the school premises by students and teachers. One teacher admitted he joined in on the feast after a student held up a dried piece of flesh the size of a finger and said, you have stomach problems. Eat this. It'll be good for you. Gosh, this is wild. I mean, this is wild. Like some schools don't even serve food in the cafeterias and we're upset. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it gets worse. Um, In the mid-1990s, a Hong Kong journalist exposed an underground human fetus market in mainland China and Hong Kong. Okay, you said 1990s. What? Yeah. Yeah, and um, this is pretty intense, so a trigger warning. 
Traders that were connected with hospitals picked up aborted fetuses and sold them on the underground market for $300 a piece. Ugh. And here's the thing. Trading fetuses on the black market is illegal, but cannibalism is not. Not even in the United States. Yeah, I know. Bonkers. Cannibalism isn't illegal, but the methods of obtaining human flesh are. So that really doesn't stop people when they have a sociopathic need for human flesh. And this brings us to cannibalism as a fetish. But keep in mind here that some of the stories we're going to tell you involve vulnerable people who are obviously pushed their psychological limits. But I mean, there's also people in this that, you know, they clearly have something psychological wrong too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Egyptian born model, 23 year old Omeima Nelson married her husband after knowing him only two months. He was 33 years older than her and very abusive. She testified to killing him and cooking his rib barbecue style before snacking on them. Mm -hmm. Uh, She also apparently fried his hands and boiled his head and she kept those in the freezer. Neighbors recall hearing the garbage disposal running for hours. Damn, then there's that story of like Kevin Bacon, not that one, but can you imagine? (laughs) 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 On Christmas Day 2019, a 25-year-old Michigan hairstylist, also named Kevin Bacon, was reported missing. His roommate said he had gone to meet a man from Grindr, the dating app on, well, hookup app, (laughs) too, on Christmas Eve. On December 28th, about 25 miles away, Bacon's body was found naked hanging by his ankles and tied to the rafters of a ceiling in the home of Mark Latunsky. Allegedly, Latunsky told police he stabbed Bacon in the back with a knife and slit his throat and then removed his testicles and ate them. With a lilt of victim blaming, Fox 2 in Southfield, Michigan, reported that Bacon was in over his head and didn't know what he had signed up for. Oh, no shit. (laughs) I mean, like, what? Yeah, but it's not his fault. My God. Um, Latinsky's neighbors recall another incident when a man ran out of his home, uh, Latinsky's home, screaming, covered in blood and like banged on their door for help. Apparently that was not enough to like raise the red flag about Latinsky's behavior. Ultimately, Latinsky pleaded guilty to murder and mutilation. Police openly say that they don't think Bacon is the only victim, but to date, no other people have come forward. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you might be wondering, we did this whole episode about cannibalism, and we haven't mentioned one of the most infamous human flesh consumers, one of history's notorious serial killers, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, and a big part of that reason is because Dahmer could probably fill an an entire episode. There's just so much with yeah, that man. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's like an example of a category of serial killer who is cannibalistic and ate the flesh of their victims. Dahmer did so because he wanted his victims to remain a part of him. Yeah. And then also, we cannot end this episode without mentioning our favorite fictional psychiatrist (laughs) uh, turned human diner, Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. He first appeared in the books by Thomas Harris. And then uh, the silver screen as portrayed by Brian Cox in 1986's Manhunter. But we probably know him as portrayed by Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Yep. And... Mm -hmm. Who, as we all know, proudly ate a census taker's liver with some fava beans and washed it down with a nice Chianti. Mm-hmm. And like, but in his defense, nobody likes census takers. No, they, if I name? choose to not answer the door, they just know that. And then they continue banging until I answer the door. Um, yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Um, co-creator of the show Yellow Jackets, Ashley Lyle, has had kind of an insightful take on cannibalism that she told the New York Times and its prevalence 
in uh, the zeitgeist today. She said, I think that we're obviously in a very strange moment. I feel like the unthinkable has become the thinkable and cannibalism is very much squarely in that category of the unthinkable. Yeah. I get what she's saying, given how upside down the world currently feels. Yeah. And like, I feel like we use the word cannibalistic to describe things beyond eating a person like late stage capitalism, burnout, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, the way that society is just making it hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And what's funny about Yellow Jackets is that many of the cast are actually vegan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm curious how I want to watch like BTS and like, how did you do that one scene? But um, it is all cauliflower. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever given thought to like, hey, what would it taste like? Could, would I do it? Could I? If somebody gave me, if somebody like consented before their death or something, or even had their arm chopped off, but then was like, no, freeze it. I just want you to try it. Everything was consensual by the book. I don't know. Would you taste it? I don't think I could choke it down. Could you? Um, there's a part. Ah. I'm like literally putting myself in this moment right now. There's a part of me that's like, I'll try everything once, but then, uh, 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 no, I don't think so. Not even like even a a little bit. It's just, it just feels like not right to eat my own species. Yeah. I I also think human meat probably doesn't taste very good. No, it doesn't. Knowing my muscles and especially, I'm sure if it was just like, I don't know, somebody that had like a big meaty body that filled their body with like nothing but like amazing food and. Mm -hmm. And they probably didn't move so that they're because I feel like it's probably like veal where. Yeah. You want it to not have muscle. Yeah. Uh, I hope we never come to a point where someone's offering it to us. I know. I know. But as as uh, the lady of Yellow Jacket said, one of the um, co-creators of like thinking about these type of things, the mere fact that we have a 30 more minutes podcast and we're covering cannibalism and even questioning and thinking about what I do it is just interesting. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And if you're new to the podcast, sorry, this is kind of one of our more like (laughs) gross episodes. Oh, yeah. But I promise we run the gamut on topics. And if you go back and listen to our archive, everything's evergreen. So you can get a new topic that's not going to feel dated. Yeah. And if you guys really like us, definitely sign up for a first membership on roosterteeth.com. We have a lot of cool perks and mm-hmm. it directly uh, supports us and the show. We'd mm-hmm. love it if you came and hung out. Yes. And we don't want to give you homework, but Jess and I, in a few weeks, are going to be doing in a special episode where we do our little morbid movie club and we watch <laughs> The Blob 1988 and then we come together to talk about it because they come up on the show <laughs> way too much. And now we're we're invested and Jess wants to rewatch it. It's been a while. I've never seen it. So we're going to yeah. do an episode where we do our review of The Blob 1988. So yeah, if you can... Real life reactions. Yeah, watch it so you can, you know listen and know what we're talking about <laughs> uh-huh and i hope you enjoy it i hope mm-hmm. you know it's a nice afternoon for you yeah so until then blob bye jessica blob bye leash <laughs> <laughs> <Ugh. laughs>